Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends, works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Story Traditions with James. I am your host, and here I am today, but I am not alone. Welcome. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jess. Jess is our apprentice this semester. She's hoping to become her very own DJ and host her own show. And we will see to it that she gets what she wants here on 90.5 WHRW. So Jess, please share with us, what year are you? I'm a sophomore. A sophomore and what are you interested in what are you what are some of the what type of show would you like to have um kind of like a jumble of my, all of my musical interests which are um i'm very eclectic i like everything good 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 mixture here all right um we'll be back uh with with more from jess and um, I'll be back with some more on the Russian bathhouse. We started discussing the Russian bathhouse last week, the implications it has. And we also looked at one person's analysis of the birth house and how he concludes that the bathhouse represents a sadomasochism within the Russian community. We will look closely at that article, discuss it briefly, and then move on to the ideological writings found in Russian literature. Writings that prophesied that Russia is to become the next Rome, that is the third empire, the third center of Christianity, and there is to be none thereafter. So we will look at the writings that suggest such um, such ideologies. Keep it locked. You'll, we'll be right back. We'll listen to some music and join in the discussion. <coughs> Hey, 
first song you heard was a Tuvan folk melody. And now we turn to our discussion of the Russian bathhouse. I, for, I want to provide you with a brief recap. So the Russian bathhouse, um, it, it may seem strange to a Westerner who is accustomed to the lonely pleasure of tepid bathtubs or a bracing spray of a shower, but the Russian bathhouse contains many people. It's a communal bathhouse. It's referred to as the Bania in Russian. Bania, B-A-N-I-A. And it's a proper Russian bath. However, it is not just relaxing or bracing. It truly hurts. The Russian does not merely soap up and rinse off, but endures additional quotas of suffering. The water thrown on the stones or bricks atop a special bathhouse stove which is called the Kamenka, produces steam, which is so hot as to bring out a profuse sweat in the bathers. The eyes and nostrils sting from the heat. Moreover, the naked bathers flail one another. They hit one another with a bundle of leafy birch twigs, which is referred to as venix, V-E-N-I-K. This mild flagellation supposedly assists the steam in flushing out the pores of the skin and leaves behind the pleasant fragrance of the birch. Sometimes the hot portion of the bath is followed up with a roll in the snow or a dip in a nearby river or lake or a cold shower. The hot bath may then be repeated. So that's a brief... um, Well, it's a summary of... The, the Russian bathhouse and what takes place there. But where we left off last week was the role of the birch twigs. What role? How does this come to become? How does this come to be one of Russia's um, uh, most famous tree? You know, the, the, the birches. Well, we looked at Someone by the name of Vladimir Prop, who was a structuralist, a structuralist, he read over 100 Russian folk tales and provided a, a thesis which endures to this day. 
that concludes how the fairy tale is constructed. And if you look at Vladimir Propp's work and you look at um, uh, fairy tales, you will see that Vladimir Propp has not only been influential in, in, in structural analysis, but also influential in, in movies. Many of the movies we watch are, are pretty much based on, on his, his, his formulae. And what he does is he writes, he writes out um, the steps of how a fairy tale is constructed. First, there may be a departure from the home, for example. In order for the hero to become a hero or develop, he or she, a hero or a heroine must leave the house. So that's an important key step in 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 the fairy tale. The individual must leave the house. The hero or shiro must leave the house. So on and so forth. And then he goes in more depth to explain how, uh, I'm sorry, other key events that take place in a fairy tale. Prop used the fairy tale to better understand the birch tree. And here's his analysis. Um, He interprets the belief that a birch tree thrown into a pond ensures adequate rainfall for the summer. Here's what he writes. The harvest depended on earth and water and on their union. The same little birch that was supposed to provide the fields with the earth's birthing strength was obliged to provide them with the moisture without which the earth will not give birth. Again, the harvest depended on earth and water and on their union. The same little birch that was supposed to provide the fields with the earth's birthing strength was obliged to provide them with the moisture, without which the earth will not give birth. Now, who, if not a mother, could this imagery possibly refer to? If the birch was not a mother herself, then at least she was a midwife who by some contagious fertility assisted Mother Earth in producing a crop of rye, itself often imagined as a mother. So the birch now represents the mother. The birch provides the moisture necessary for, for uh, crops to grow. So the, 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 the birch now takes on the role of the mother in providing nurturing for the rest of the Russian land, let's say. Okay? So, the birch mother. And before the Soviet period, women prayed to birch trees in the area of what is called Svet, Svetolier. It's near Novgorod. And addressing the trees as birch mother, Beretsa Matushka. Okay, a topos in some of the Russian spells placed the mother of God beside the birch tree. So throughout time, the birch tree has come to represent the mother, has come to represent the key um, elements of the mother. And keep in mind, when we're talking about the mother, we're talking about giving birth, uh, nurturing, caring for the child, starting in the womb. The womb provides water for for cushioning the child and, and nurturing and providing nutrients for that child. So the birch tree providing water and moisture for nurturing 
um, crops is almost parallel with that of the, the the water for nurturing and supporting the child or the, the fetus in the womb. Okay, so that's the first point. The birch tree represents the mother and the motherly duties. Now, the birch tree is then taken by young women and they flagellate themselves with the birch tree or they flagellate the birch tree. Why? Why do they flagellate the birch tree? Why do they destroy the birch tree if it represents the mother? Well, for that very reason. Because it represents the mother, they beat the birch tree. Think about your your younger sister, your daughter, your cousin, your female younger counterpart. How did they treat their mother when they were growing up? So when they passed puberty, they wanted to rebel against their mother, didn't they? And I'm talking uh, specifically about young women in relationship to their mothers. Okay, Young women tend to rebel against their mothers at a very early age. The reasons for that are numerous, okay? And I'm not going to go into the psychology of why young women rebel against their mothers because you can use Freudian analysis. You can talk about um, castration and, and so on and so forth. Nonetheless, I think we can all agree that at a young age, the young woman rebel, rebels against their mother. And this... Beating up of the birch tree represents a similar phenomenon. These young girls are beating up on their quote-unquote mother by beating the birch tree. And they're getting pleasure out of it. Now, the pleasure part, them beating up on that birch tree, giving them pleasure, may sound sadistic. That is, they're getting this pleasure from inflicting harm on something. It's very sadistic. And that is what the author points out in this article. That that fulfills the sadistic part of sadomasochism. The beating of the birch tree. And why do they beat the birch tree again? Well, young girls, according to this article, feel that once they get married, they sort of enter in a contract where the husband may beat them up, okay, or be, become abusive towards them. So they are upset at their mother for that. They want to beat up their mother because they feel that their mother cannot fight off the men who will ultimately beat them up in a relationship and so on and so forth. So this um, antagonistic view between their mother, it's it's very tricky and complicated, and I, I, I can't really get too deep into it, but that is part of the problem. The, why the, That is part of one of the reasons why they beat up on the birch tree, which indirectly is beating up on their mother, because they feel that their mother will not be able to protect them from a violent husband, Okay. So they're getting pleasure from beating up on on the birch tree. Now, the masochism. Okay, what what does that entail? 
Uh, we'll look at that after we listen to some more songs. Keep it locked. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. Title of the show is Story Traditions with James. I am your host, James. Um, we're looking at the Russian bathhouse. Um, and we're also discussing an article which suggests that the Russian bathhouse may represent a sadomasochistic um, attitude shared amongst Russians. And after that, we'll go into the ideological writings of Russia. Um, the show goes on till 2.30, so we're here till 2.30, ladies and gentlemen. Feel free to call us in, 777-2137 in the 607 area code. Guru mm-hmm. 
Dugurudugurutsuki Vexpeluke Vandenelo Nadranda Shalitinelo Takutsuka look, Takutsuka look, Люляй до корялы, люляй рутялы, уже мик мано ущеряла, уже мик мано Аж грецу вяри всю полоной линялюс, И шаусю тау дробялась, И шаусю тау дробя. Ой, Пасю сумаречки не, а вою жалксу жалкс манаду кряле, как красноей лиапяле, как красноей лиапяле. Та я сукара усю дзиди шаривяли, Та я маргую дробялю, Та я маргую дробя. Та я Вай капатио сберинял, Таяш ну колосю плоном дробялым, Долеке And I'm back. 
And what you just heard, ladies and gentlemen, were lullabies, Russian lullabies, one being Lithuanian and the other being Estonian lullabies. And I played those lullabies for you because they represent children, caring for children, lulling them to sleep, putting them at rest. Well, the bathhouse was responsible for bringing forth new life into the world. Uh, the Russian bathhouse is known for um, the birth pl- for uh, being a place where birth of children took place, and um, there would be maybe a midwife to give birth in in the bathhouse, and that child would be steamed. It was a, a seem it, it was seen as a form of cleansing, cleaning of the child, steaming the child. In some instances, the child developed rashes, and and whatnot, but. That was the role of the Russian bathhouse. And to uh, uh, to recap on my 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 point on sado, the sadistic part point of the bathhouse. That is the young girls venting their frustration on the birch trees, treating the birch trees as their mother. Here is a little song. I can't sing it because I, I don't have the notes. But these are the words. Hi, you little white curly birch. In a field in the valley you stood. We cut you down. We ruined you. So you too ruin your husband. Cut his head off on the right side, from the right to the left. And those words represent frustrations young girls have towards their spouses. Um, You know... I've never been married. I, I don't know what it's like to be in a marriage relationship, but... You know, you can always discuss relationships. I mean, what to do, what not to do, so on and so forth. But it seems like these young girls were very afraid of getting themselves involved in a relationship with a spouse who may be abusive towards them. And they vented their anger on the birch tree as they would vent their anger on their mother because they think their mother has was not capable of protecting them long enough. So there it is. Another event that took place in the birth house is the wedding. The wedding also took rituals took place in the birth house. Uh wedding there are several wedding laments that describe the fear young women have of going into the um into a marriage. And here's another song. Here's like two lines from a song. As I stepped into this warm bath, my freedom flew away from my little head. So marriage was seen as the loss of freedom by women. And that passage of life took place in the birth house. So the birth house provides a venue for various, a variety of passages. First, birth. Second, marriage. And in between, you have the venting of anger and frustration. And and this venting has a sadomasochistic um, appearance, according to this author. So that's that's all I really want to discuss in regards to the birth house, uh, bathhouse, I'm sorry, the banias. I want to now focus our attention on some more Russian literature. We're going to look next at the ideological writings, more specifically the white cowl, the story of the white cowl. 
and how this story is used to infuse an ideology in the Russian populace that Russia is now the third Rome, the center of Christianity. And when we return, we'll look at that story closely. Ladies and gentlemen, remember the number here is 777-2137 in the 607 area code. You're always welcome to give us a call, share your views about the stories, about uh, the, the articles, so on and so forth. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. turn our attention to the tale of the white cow. And I will provide you with a brief synopsis because it's a fairly long story and it, it, it has many parts. So I'll provide you with a brief synopsis and then we will move into the core of the story. And here's the synopsis. The tale of the white cow opens with the story of Emperor Constantine's illness which could be cured neither by physicians nor by magicians. One such magician, who was violently opposed to Christianity, advised the emperor that in order to be cured, he must bathe in the blood of 3,000 infants called killed expressly for that purpose. However, at the last minute, Emperor Constantine, moved by the tears and wailings of the mothers of the children who were to be slain, canceled his plan, preferring to die rather than to kill children in order to restore his health. That very night, the emperor had a vision of the apostles Peter and Paul, who told him that Pope Sylvester, who was in hiding from his persecutors at that time, could show him a font of salvation bathing wherein would cure him of this affliction. 
In recompense, the emperor was to grant new rights to the Christian church and to support it as the national religion. The tale continues that the emperor was cured, ended the persecutions of Christians, and even wished to grant the imperial crown to the pope. The pope most humbly refused to accept it, so the emperor gave him a white cowl, the symbol of the primacy of spiritual power over secular power and of the resurrection, the color white representing the radiance of the resurrection of Christ. Having given the supreme power in the city of Rome to the Pope, Emperor Constantine then left the eternal city and went to the ancient city of Byzantium, which was later renamed the city of Constantine or Constantinople. Thus did the Eastern or Byzantine Roman Empire come into being. After the death of Pope Sylvester, the tale goes on to say the white cowl was highly revered by the popes of Rome. However, in the 9th century, when the West was ruled by Emperor Charlemagne and the papal see was ruled by Pope Formosus, a schism arose between the Eastern and Western churches. The Western church, under the leadership of the pope, developed new teachings and doctrines that the Eastern Church considered to be Latin heresies, particularly the doctrine of the primacy of the Pope of Rome over the entire Church. From that time on, the Popes ceased to revere the white cowl and finally decided to profane and destroy it. However, a miraculous power saved the white cowl, and the Pope was forced to send it to the Patriarch of Constantinople, the capital of the still extant Eastern Roman Empire, or as it is more often called, Byzantium. Now, here's the translation of the tale. Okay, so that was a synopsis. That was the leading lead-in to the tale. And I want to remind you all that the cowl, the white cowl, C-O-W-L, is something worn on the head. It's it's a white knitted hat, if you will. Um, I, I can't describe it any anymore, but it's a white knitted hat. It sort of looks like one of those nets that um, women would wear. But then, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I'm talking to my apprentice here. Um, can you imagine it? Yeah, I think I can get the picture. Like, are you talking about like the ones that ladies wore and like when they go like pray at the Catholic church or something? Possibly, but it's netted. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about: the white cowl, C O W L. And here is the story. At that time, the patriarch of Constantinople was Philotheus, who was distinguished by his strict fasting and his virtuous ways. Once he had a vision in, in the night of a youth from whom emanated light, and who told him, Blessed teacher, in the olden times, the Roman emperor Constantine, who through the vision of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, was enlightened by God decided to give blessed Pope Sylvester the white cowl to glorify the holy apostolic apostolic church. Later, the unfaithful popes of the Latin heresies wanted to profane and destroy this cowl, but it appeared to the evil pope, 
And now this Pope has sent his cowl to you. When the messengers arrive with you, you must accept it with all honors. Then send the white cowl to the Russian land, to the city of Novgorod, the Great, with your written blessing. And there this cowl will be worn on the head of Vasily, Archbishop of Novgorod, so that he may glorify the Holy Apostolic Cathedral of Holy Sophia and loud the Orthodox faith. There, in that land, the faith of Christ is verily glorified, and the popes, because of their shameless shamelessness, will receive the vengeance of God. And having spoken these words, the youth became invisible. The patriarch awoke, awoke filled with awe and joy, and was unable to sleep throughout the remainder of the night, and, the, and he contemplated this vision. In the morning he ordered that the bells should sound the matins, and when day came he summoned the church council and revealed his vision, and all praised God, perceiving that a holy angel had appeared to the patriarch. Yet they did not fully understand the meaning of the message. When they were still in church in council and were filled with awe due to their great joy, there arrived a servant of the patriarch. And he announced to them that messengers had arrived from the Pope of Rome. The patriarch ordered that they be brought before him. The messengers came, bowed lowly to the patriarch, and gave him the message. The patriarch read the message and pondered it, praising God. He announced its contents to Emperor John, who was reigning at the time and whose name was Kantakuzin, and then he went with the entire council to meet the bringers of the divine treasure which lay in the ark. He accepted it with all honors, broke the seal, and took from the ark the holy white cowl. He kissed it with reverence and looked upon it with wonderment, both for its creation and for the wonderful fragrance that emanated from it. At that time, the patriarch had diseased eyes and constant headaches, but when he placed the white cowl upon his head, these afflictions immediately ceased to be, and he rejoiced with great joy and rendered glory to Christ our Lord, to Constantine's blessed memory for his creating this wonderful cowl for blessed Pope Sylvester. And he put the holy cowl on the golden salver that was also sent by the Pope. He placed them in the great church in an honorable place until he could make a decision with the emperor's counseling. After the white cowl was sent from Rome, the evil pope, who was counseled by heretics, became angered against the Christian faith and was driven to frenzy, extremely regretting his allowing the white cowl to be sent to Constantinople. And he wrote an evil letter to the patriarch, in which he demanded the return of the white cowl on the golden salver. The patriarch read this letter, and understanding the Pope's evil and cunning design, sent him a letter in return that was based on holy scripture, and in it he called the Pope both evil and godless. The apostate, the, pers- the precursor of the Antichrist. And the patriarch cursed the Pope in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the holy apostles, and the church fathers. And this letter came to the Pope. When the Pope had read the letter and learned that the Patriarch intended to send the white cow with great honor to Russian land to the city of Novgorod the Great, he uttered a roar 
and his face changed, and he fell ill, for he, the infidel, disliked the Russian land and could not even bear to hear of this land where the Christian faith was professed. Patriarch Philotheus, having seen that the white cowl was illumined with grace, began to ponder how he might keep it in Constantinople and wear it on his own head. He consulted with the emperor about the matter several times and wanted to write to the other patriarchs and metropolitans to summon them to council. After matins on Sunday, the patriarch returned to his chambers and after the usual prayers lay down to rest. But he slept but lightly. And in this sleep, he saw that two men who were unknown to him came through the door and from them there emanated light. One of them was armed as a warrior and had an imperial crown upon his head. The other wore a bishop's vestments and was distinguished by his venerable white hair. The latter spoke to the patriarch, saying, Patriarch! Stop pondering your wearing of the white cowl on your own head! If this were to be our Lord, Jesus Christ would have so predestined it from the founding of this city. And for a long time did divine enlightenment come from heaven. And then time, and then God's voice came to me and I learned that Rome had to betray God and embrace their Latin heresies. That is the reason I did not wish to wear this cowl upon my head. And thus I instructed other popes not to do so. And this imperial city of Constantinople will be taken by the sons of Hagar because of its sins, and all holy shrines will be defiled and destroyed. Thus has it happened and been predestined since the founding of this city. The ancient city of Rome has broken away from the glory and faith of Christ because of its pride and ambition. And in the new Rome, which has been the city of Constantinople, the Christian faith will also perish through the violence of the sons of Hagar. In the third Rome, the third Rome, which will be the land of Russia, the grace of the Holy Spirit will be revealed. Know then, Philotheus, that all Christians will finally unite into one Russian nation because of its orthodoxy. Since ancient times, and by the will of Constantine, emperor of the earth, the imperial crown of the imperial city is predestined to be given to the Russian Tsar. But the white cow, by the will of the king of heaven, Jesus Christ, will be given to the archbishop, archbishop of Novgorod the Great. And this white cow is more honorable than the crown of the Tsar. For it is an imperial crown of the archangelic spiritual order. Thus, you must send this holy white cow to the Russian land, to the city of Novgorod the Great, as you were told to do in the vision of the angel. You should believe and trust in what I say. And when you send it to the Russian land, the Orthodox faith will be glorified and the cow will be safe from seizure by the infidel sons of Hagar and from the intended profanation by the Latin Pope. 
and the grace, glory, and honor which were taken from Rome as well as the grace of the Holy Spirit will be removed from the imperial city of Constantinople after its capture by the sons of Hagar. And all, all holy relics will be given to the Russian land in the predestined moment. And the Russian Tsar will be elevated by God above other nations and under his sway will be many heathen kings. And the power of the patriarch of this imperial ruling city will pass to the Russian land in the predestined hour. And that land will be called Radiant Russia, which, by the grace of God, will be glorified with blessings and its majesty will be strengthened by its orthodoxy. And it will become more honorable than the two Romes which preceded it. And saying this, the man of the vision was dressed in a bishop's vestment, wished to leave, but the patriarch, seized by great awe, fell before the bishop and said, Who? Who? Who are you, my lord? Who are you, my lord? Your vision has seized me with great awe. My heart has been frightened by your words, and I tremble. I tremble to my very bones. Who are you? The man in the bishop's vestments answered, Don't you know who I am? I am Pope Sylvester, and I came to you because I was ordered by God to reveal to you the great mystery which will come to pass in the predestined time. Then pointing to the other man in the vision, he added, This, this is blessed Imperial Constantine of Rome to whom I gave rebirth in the holy font and whom I won over to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the first Christian emperor, my child in Christ, who created and gave me the white cowl in place of the imperial crown. And saying this, he blessed the patriarch and became invisible. Waking up, the patriarch was seized with awe, remembering the words about the white cowl and the conquest of Constantinople by the pagan sons of Hagar. When he wept for a long time, and he wept for a long time. When the hour of the divine mass arrived, the patriarch went to the church, fell before the icon of the Holy Mother of God, and remained lying there for some time. Then he arose, took the white cowl with great reverence, Kissed, kissed it piously, placed it upon his head, and then put it to his eyes and his heart. And his adoration for this cowl increased even more. And doing this, he wept. His clerics, who were around him, and saw that he wept unconsciously, did not dare to inquire as to why he was weeping. Finally, 
The patriarch ceased crying and told his clerics in detail of the vision of Pope Sylvester and Emperor Constantine. Having heard these words, the clerics wept sorrowfully and exclaimed, (gasps) Thy will be done! The patriarch mourning the forthcoming misfortunes of the city of Constantinople and fearing to trespass the divine will, told them that he must fulfill the will of the Lord and do with the white cowl as he was commanded to do. After having deliberated with blessed Emperor John, he took the white cowl and the golden salver, put them in the aforementioned ark, sealed it with his seal, and, as he was commanding by the holy angel and blessed Pope Sylvester, put in his epistle with his blessings. And in it, he commanded Archbishop Vasily and all other bishops who would follow Vasily to wear the white cowl upon their heads. He added many other honorable and marvelous gifts from the clergy of the bishopric of Novgorod the Great. And he also sent vestments with their embroidered crosses for the glorification of the holy apostles apostolic church and all this was placed in another ark and he gave these arks to a bishop named eunomius eunemius and sent him forth with both joy and sorrow and the bishopric bishopric of the city of novgorod the great was archbishop vasily who distinguished himself by his fasting and virtuous ways Once in the night, he prayed to God and then lay down to rest, but he slept but but lightly and had a dream in which he saw the angel of God. This angel of God, who had a handsome appearance and radiant face, appeared before him in the garb of a monk and with the white cowl upon his head. With his finger, he pointed to his head and in a low voice announced, Basile. Basile, this white cowl which you see on my head is from Rome. In olden times, the Christian emperor Constantine created it in honor of Sylvester, Pope of Rome. He gave it to this pope to wear upon his head. But God Almighty did not permit the white cowl to remain remain there because of their Latin heresies. Tomorrow morning... You must go from the city with your clergymen and meet the bishop and messengers sent by the patriarch, and they will bring an ark. And in this ark you will find the white cowl upon a golden salver. Accept it with all honors, for this white cowl symbolizes the radiant resurrection which came to pass in the third day. And from now you and all archbishops of this city will wear it on your heads, and I have come to you to assure you beforehand that all is as God wills it and to assuage any doubts you may have. And saying this, the angel became invisible. Waking up, Archbishop Vasily was seized with awe and joy, pondering the meaning of the vision. The next morning, he sent his clerics outside the city to the crossroads to see whether the messengers really would appear. 
In the vicinity of the city, the envoys of Archbishop Vasily met, met a Greek bishop who was unknown to them and who traveled to the city of Novgorod. They made a low obeisance and returned to the archbishop and told them all they had seen. The bishop then sent his preacher into the city to summon the clerics and the entire population, and he ordered the tolling of the bells, and both he and the clerics donned their vestments. The procession had not gone far from the Cathedral of Holy Sophia when they met the aforementioned bishop sent by the patriarch and hearing the ark that had been sealed by the patriarch and contained the venerable gifts. He came to Archbishop Vasily, made a low obeisance before him, and gave him the epistles of the patriarch. They blessed and greeted each other in Christ's name. Archbishop Vasily accepted the epistles of the patriarch and the ark bearing the venerable gifts, and he went with them to the cathedral of Holy Sophia, the wisdom of God. There he put them in the middle of the church in an honorable place and ordered that the patriarchal epistles be read aloud. When the Orthodox people who were in the cathedral heard these writings read aloud, they rendered glory to God and rejoiced with great joy. Archbishop Vasily opened one of the arks and removed the cover, and a wonderful fragrance and miraculous radiance spread through, through the church. Archbishop Vasily and all present were in wonderment, witnessing these happenings. And Bishop Eunomios, who was sent by the patriarch, wondered about these blessed deeds of God that he had witnessed, and they all rendered glory to God and celebrated the service of thanksgiving. Archbishop Vasile took the white cowl from the ark and saw that it appeared exactly like the one he had seen on the angel's head in his vision, and he kissed it with reverence. At that same moment, there came a sonorous voice from the icon of the Lord, which, which was in the cupola of the church, saying, Holy, 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 holy. And after a moment of silence, there came the same voice with thrice, which thrice announced, Espola eti despota, Espola eti despota, Espola eti despota. And when the archbishop and all those present heard these voices, they were seized with awe and joy, and they said, Ah, the Lord has have mercy upon us. And the archbishop then ordered that all present in the church be silent. And he, he revealed to them his vision of the angel and his words concerning the white cow. And he told of his vision as it had happened, and in detail, even as it was told to him by the angel in the night. Giving thanks to God for sending the cow, the archbishop went forth from the church, preceding by the deacons in holy vestments, carrying tapers and singing hymns, and they proceeded with serenity and piety. And the people crowded round, jostling each other and jumping so that they might see the white cow on the archbishop's head, and all were in wonderment. Thus, in this way, thanks to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the blessing of His Holiness Philotheus, Patriarch of Constantinople, the white cowl became a symbol upon the heads of the Archbishops of Novgorod and Archbishop 
and Archbishop Vasily was overcome with great joy. And for seven days he feasted all priests, deacons, and clerics of the city of Novgorod the Great. And he also offered food and drink to the poor, to monks, and to prisoners. And he asked that the prisoners be released. During the divine service, he placed the holy and venerable gifts of the holy patriarch in the cathedral of Holy Sophia with the blessings of all clerics. And the golden salver on which the white cow was placed was also deposited in the cathedral of Holy Sophia during the Mass. The messengers of the patriarch who brought the holy white cow were also shown great honor and they received many gifts. The archbishop sent gifts to the emperor and patriarch of Constantinople and sent the messengers forth with great honors. Thereafter, multitudes arrived from many cities and kingdoms to look upon, as if it were a miracle, the archbishop in the white cowl. And they were in wonderment about it and told of it in many lands. This holy white cowl was created by the first pious Christian emperor, Constantine, for blessed Pope Sylvester in the year 297. And this is the history of the holy white cowl up to this date. And when we return, ladies and gentlemen, we will look at this story closely, how it was used to infuse this idea of Russia being the third Rome, the third center of Christianity, and there will be none thereafter. So keep it locked. I will return. We're on till 2.30. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. Rated PG for parental guidance. Listener discretion advised. In a world without a future, one engineer and his guests stumble upon the secret to the future. The The program. program. It may contain offensive views. It may contain offensive language. It may just offend. (laughs) These views may not necessarily coincide with those of WHRW management. Therefore, consider all these things when deciding whether to listen. Checkmate. Coming this summer to a radio near you. And I don't care what the politicians spout. If you need a companion, why just go out by the pound and find yourself a hound and make that dog get proud. Do you like dogs? Would you like to save a life? Well, you can save a dog's life by adopting your next pet instead of purchasing one. For more information on dog adoption, you can visit your local animal shelter or check out dogsindanger.com. This was a public service announcement from your friends at WHRW Binghamton. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition.
Stormy Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends. Works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. also want to remind you all that tomorrow the Heritage Department of WHRW will be commemorating Black History Month with its marathon uh, starting at 2 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. tomorrow. You can tune in to hear uh, historical events as they pertain to African Americans, uh, music and the like. Um, and in the morning at 9.30, there's gospel time. And right after gospel time at noon, there's Ross Charles with reggae, Iration Vibration. And the Heritage Marathon kicks off at 2 p.m. So be sure to tune in. I will return to discuss the tale of the white cow, its origins, and its impact on Russian medieval Russian civilization after a few songs. Oh, 
song titled A Leave Taking and before that we heard an, a, an Estonian bagpipe song and now we return to The Tale of the White Cow and it's an ideological writing um, from let's say the 15th century Novgorod um, so this is medieval Russia we're now in medieval Russia and um, in the Middle Ages there there was an Irish philosopher by the name of John Scotus Eregina. And the Italian theologian, theologian Joachim de Fiore modified Daniel's original concept into the theory of the three kingdoms. Okay, so this is how it, it's referring back to the Bible, how they're using the Bible to prophesy that Russia will become the third um, Rome. So those two, um, Regina and De Fior, modified Daniel's original concept into the theory of the three kingdoms, that is, the kingdom of the Father who gave the law, and that's in the Old Testament, the kingdom of the Son who brought grace and the final kingdom of the Holy Spirit, of which the apostles said, where there is the Spirit of God, there is freedom. So the theory of the final kingdom of the Holy Spirit became known in Russia and later formed the basis for um, both the tale of the white cow and the third Rome theory. And in the eyes of Archbishop Gennady and Dmitri, Russia was predestined by God to be revealed as the last kingdom, the kingdom of the Holy Spirit, which will endure until the last judgment. The authors of the tale of the white cow combined this theocratic utopian tenet 
with the Roman Catholic legend of the gift of the city of Rome to Pope Sylvester by Emperor Constantine. And this legend, what I just read for you, this tale, laid the foundation for the secular power of the Pope of Rome and also the, for the independence of the Pope from the Emperor. So that's background information on, on the tale. Um, I now turn to my apprentice. Do you have anything in particular to say about that story? Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I did not know any of it. Right. So. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah it, I, I thought um, it's a wonderful tale that we can look back upon and see you know, how these ideologies were formed. And they were pretty much formed through um, narration, through storytelling and so on. And the conclusion um, about Vasily and opening the the ark and finding the cowl and so on might have been true. Um, his grave, his tomb was excavated, and they found this white cowl in his grave, and they found the jewels with which he was honored and he was given in the grave. So the the fascination of this story is that it, it, it lingers in the mind. Did this really happen or did it not happen? Is it true? Is it false? You have evidence that suggests um, that, suggests that it may be true. But then, you know, did these people really have dreams and these visions of of bishops and so on going on? That can be debated. And I think that's the, the, the wonderment of this story. And I think that it's very, it, it works well for the imagination that that um, may provide for this excitement among people, um, for this belief that maybe Russia can be the third Rome. And we're looking at medieval Russia, 15th century Russia. What was going on at this point? Lots, lots of um, things, things were going on. And when we return... We'll look at some of the historical events that was going on. Who was in control of Russia at this point? Um, you have the, the the Mongols, the the Mongol invasion that took place. You have a, 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 the Lithuanian Poland um, Empire, if you will, on the rise. So, how did these events feed into such um, <clears throat> ideologies? And when we return, we'll look at that. Closely. Keep it locked. Oh, 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 oh,
heard wedding songs from both South and North Russia, respectively. Now we turn to our story of the day, the tale of the white cow. And how is it that Russia, what was going on that would maybe add to the, the enthusiasm or the excitement about Russia being the third Rome? Well, let's, let's take a look back in, in, in Russia's history. Okay, in the 1100s, 12th century, you had the invasion of the Mongols coming in, sacking the cities, taking it over, um, you know, pretty much dominating everything except the church. Okay, they 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 didn't accept the church was exempt from t- collecting taxes, and that plays an important role in in the rise in the increase of wealth in Moscow or Muscovy later on. But then you have Alexander Nevsky. Uh, in the 13th century or the 1200s, who fights off the Swedes and the Teutonic invaders at the time. He becomes canonized. He becomes a saint of Russia. He also forms a special relationship with the Mongols. And this this, um, allows Russians to trust Alexander more and more and more. Okay, and let's keep in mind that when, um, wh- why was it so easy for the Mongols to invade Russia and dominate? We looked at this last week when we talked about the infighting, the fratricidal feuding among the princes, and and um, this fighting led for an easy siege siege by the Mongols. All right, so Alexander Nevsky defeats the Swedes, Teutonic, and the Teutonic invaders and um, forges a relationship with the Mongols that seems to be peace, peace-like, a peace agreement with them. Then, Moscow increases in wealth. How is it that Moscow increases in wealth? For a number of reasons. Moscow, its location in Russia at the time, is is enclosed around, fo- around forests. So, it was sort of kind of hidden but it was not quite hidden it was enclosed within the forests 
So that allowed people, um, you know, invaders. It, it it wasn't a deterrent from invasion, but it wasn't a lure for invasion either. This enclosure hindered invasion because it was a it was not quite of a lure as other cities might have been. So they began to uh, inhabit the Mus- the Russians began to inhabit inhabit Moscow. Remember, the churches were exempt from taxes, so wealth accrued in the churches, um, so on and so forth. So Moscow grew in, in wealth over time. And while Moscow was growing in wealth, the Mongols were disputing among themselves. So the same back and forth that was going on in in. Uh, that was going on before the Mongol invasion among the Russians was now going on after the Mongol invasion among the Mongols. So the the Muscovies, the Muscovites, took advantage of this just as the Mongols took advantage of the infighting among the Russians. They took advantage of this and sacked, uh, pretty much took over the, the Russian lands. They sacked Novgorod, well, in particular... Ivan III sacked Novgorod, and um, that led there. There, there's ambiguity as to how the effects of that sacking, but the Russians was ultimately able to to push out the Mongols and regain their their land, their territory. What's left? Why do you think, I think that this would feed in to the idea that Russia is to become the third Rome. Here it is. They're defeating the biggest empire they've ever seen. They're they're defeating the biggest colonizers, if you will, that they've ever seen. Their spirits are up. They have an an emperor, well, a, 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 a prince... Um, Ivan the Third, who is who is pretty much dominating his 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 resume is very impressive. He's dom- he sacks Novgorod. Okay, in fact, Peter. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, Ivan the Third or Ivan the Great adopts the name Tsar. After him, Ivan the Fourth is is crowned as a Tsar. Okay, Peter the Great, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ivan the Third, before his uh, reign is over, he adopts the Tsar, the role of the, the, the title Tsar. And that title is then carried over to P, uh, Ivan the Fourth or Ivan the Terrible. But Ivan the Fourth is crowned Tsar. Okay, he doesn't ad- adopt it, he is the first official crowned Tsar of Russia. So Moscow, Muscovy is flourishing at this point. Wealth is accruing, uh, monetary wealth. Um, unfortunately, I can't share with you the the the, the massive um, church ornaments, clothing that is now being distributed among the upper classes in in, in Muscovy. But you will see wealth is accruing. So it, it ties in well that Moscow is to become. The, the new Rome, the third Rome. Okay, and I think 
that this feeds in to the um, whole notion of Russia becoming the third, the center of Christianity because of the things, the settings that are now in place for Russia. They now have Ivan III. Ivan IV is now uh, be, be, uh, being crowned the first czar of Russia. And before that, we see we have Alexander Nevsky. Alexander Nevsky fighting off the Swedes and the Teutonic invaders and forging relationships with the Mongols. So it only it's only reasonable that the Russians see that their new country, their new land, is to become the center of Christianity and the third Rome. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I conclude my show. We will return next week with some more story traditions with James. We will focus more on folklore, the emergence of folklore and its role in in Russian literature. We'll also look at Ivan the, the Terrible, Ivan the Fourth. What is it that he does to Russia that both glorifies him and puts him, gives him this evil lure uh, that Stalin looks at? For um, that, that Stalin looks towards for inspiration. Okay, so I thank you again for your time. I will return next week here on 90.5 WHRW Binghamton, Story Traditions with James. Have a wonderful weekend, ladies and gentlemen. And remember, tomorrow the Heritage Department celebrates its marathon from 2 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Keep it locked. Have a wonderful weekend. Не слыхала Настасюшка да как ворота Whoa.
光。